objects. We are the living stones. The Holy Spirit is the occupant. That's why we pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come and to be with us and bless us. And the master builder is God himself. This church was planned by God the Father before time began. It's God the Father's church. And Christ is the chief cornerstone. And so applying that principle means that anything that we do in our church life is not according to the the pastor or according to the GO or according to the elders or according to the, the big people. That's not how church should be run. Churches must be run through the power of the Holy Spirit in accordance to God's Word, to Christ's glory, and in the sense that this church is being built by God the Father. And so we wanted to then move on to say, well, how do we behave in church? How do we conduct ourselves in church? What should we be doing? And, and then we've moved to 1 Timothy. And, and the first session we had in 1 Timothy was we had a quick overview of the book of Timothy. Uh, there's two Timothys, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, both written to the same person, both written by Paul. Paul wrote this letter, and it was written to Timothy. But it wasn't just written to Timothy, it was written to the church at Ephesus. In fact, it was written to the church at all times. So we could argue that this book of Timothy, this letter of Timothy, although it was given particularly to him and the church at Ephesus, it's also been given to us here at LPC. This book of Timothy is a guide for us how to do church now, those 2,000 years on. It was written probably around about 62 AD, and the big theme of the letter of 1 Timothy is all about this. We can read about it in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 15, but basically Timothy is told by Paul that he wrote this letter so that they could learn how to behave in the household of God. How to behave in church. And so in many ways, what we've got and why we're going through uh, this book of 1 Timothy is because we're seeing this as our guide. We're seeing this as our manual to how to behave uh, in the household of God. Now also in the letter of Timothy, there's lots of advice and lots of counsel and lots of teaching for those that are pastors and elders. And as we go through this book, we're going to be concentrating what it says to the church rather than to those individuals. And that's because the series is looking at church life, uh, but it will interact uh, a little bit. We, we looked at chapter 1 before I went to the UK, and we saw in chapter 1 that there was a dangerous message. There is false doctrine and false teachers. Uh, we see that nowadays. We see false doctrine and false teaching around. And how do we protect ourselves from false gospel and false teaching? Well, then we need to know the glorious gospel message. We need to be sure of the good news ourselves. And in the first chapter of Timothy, Paul sets out this glorious good news. He says there is salvation from sin. Just as we were saying to the children, sin separates us from God. The good news of the gospel message is Jesus came to take that sin, to deal with that sin. God doesn't just say, I forgive you. 
God sends his son and his son takes the punishment for the sins of his people. And that means that his people are saved to the utmost. But our salvation brings us into a relationship with God and he wants, God wants us to serve him. Every one of you here who's trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have been brought into his kingdom and there is a role, there's a task for you to do. Some people are, are, are called into a full-time capacity, but we're all in a full-time capacity. We all should be serving God in different ways. Our life it should be a living sacrifice to him. The way we conduct ourselves, the way you conduct yourselves at university as a student should be in service to God. And then you also have opportunities to, to serve God in other capacities, be it in the church setting, be it outside of the church. This glorious gospel message saves us from sin, brings us into a relationship with God through Christ, enables us to serve. But the glorious gospel message is to protect us from spiritual shipwreck. I, I smiled at myself when I was rereading that uh, line because the Apostle Paul went through many shipwrecks. He knew what a shipwreck was. We could say an aeroplane wreck. We could say a train wreck. We could say whatever. But basically, what's been talked about here is people who fail spiritually. And the glorious gospel message, if we know Christ is our own, will keep us from that. And so Timothy chapter 1 had a particular message to us. We should hold on to biblical doctrine. We shouldn't go out of God's word. If we want to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we get that knowledge from God's word. When you hear God's word being preached, you need to make sure that it is from God's word. And so you're encouraged to have your Bibles open, whether it be on your device or whether it be physically or whether you look at it on the screen. We want you to have your Bibles open. You see, the biblical doctrine, the biblical teaching is what leads to salvation. There's only one way to God, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that way is set out in his word. And it's the only way. There was big trouble back in those days with other people saying you needed Christ plus something else. And maybe you've experienced that yourselves in your own lives, in your own situation. You've heard of someone saying, yes, but you have to do this as well. No, we can't make ourselves right with God. The only way is the way that is set out in God's word. We need biblical teachers. You should be praying for your pastors, for your teachers, for those who lead the growth groups, that those who get involved in teaching, that God will help them to have biblical salvation in their minds and biblical doctrine. And then a true church will also have righteous church discipline. Church discipline is not to punish, but church discipline is to see people restored and brought back into the family. Now Paul moves in his mind now uh, in this letter and, and he moves his uh, emphasis. And, and chapters 2 and 3 really address the membership of the church. Church members. Who are members of a church? Well, the members of the church need to be people who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. 
and, and throughout God's word, and we'll probably come on to this later on in the series, we see that back there in the book of Acts, they did have church membership. They counted the people. They knew that more people were added to the church daily. They knew what was going on. And so the little local churches, local bodies of God's people came together. And this group in Ephesus who are being pastored by Timothy, are being told how to do church. And uh, the first issue that Paul deals with as a church life is prayer. And then he goes on to conduct in this chapter. And so originally, I was thinking that I'll be doing this chapter as a whole, and we'll be looking at prayer and conduct alongside each other. And and that's not going to happen. So we'll be looking at prayer this Sunday and then going on to conduct the second part next Sunday, uh, God willing. So the really exciting bit next Sunday about women being silent in church and all those things that you thought, this is going to be an interesting sermon, that's coming next week, God willing. But we need to get the foundation right. This letter was written in an order for a purpose. And before we can think about those things that maybe excite us or interest or or annoy us, we need to think about prayer. There's no chance with God's Word. It didn't sort of happen by accident. God who planned and made this world in its intricacy put as much effort, if not more, if that's possible for God, into his own Word. And and the fact that Paul mentions prayer as his first item is of no mistake. So we see under this heading of prayer that we are, the people then were urged to pray in verse 1. So the main heading is prayer, and then we see urged to pray in verse 1. I just heard about uh, a story of an African uh, church leader He was taken to America to do a tour of the churches. And at the end of uh, his tour, as he's about to leave, he he was asked his thoughts. And he replied, I'm surprised by how little prayer I witnessed. I'm surprised by how little prayer I witnessed. And it's been said that it's hard to find sort of an evangelical church service uh, around the U.S. and around Europe that contains more, contains one three-minute prayer. So what they're saying is most church services, their prayers that they have are less than three minutes long. And and when prayers sometimes happen, they happen when a worship leader finishes one song and then moves on to the next one and a little prayer is thrown in. Or as one person put it, they said prayer seems to be the link like the TV commercials, which allows the church to transition between one item and another Sadly, in so many churches, prayer has been squeezed out. 
And I don't know what the situation was at that church in Ephesus, but I do know that the Apostle Paul was saying, I urge you to pray. And at the top of his agenda was prayer life within the church. It's been said that prayer is the true barometer or the true measure of your spiritual health. Have you heard that said before? Prayer is the measure of your spiritual health. So the question we need to be asking ourselves now is, where does prayer or how does prayer feature in your life? Is there a scale for measuring the power of prayer? No, there's not. But there is a scale that can tell you how much time of your day you spent in prayer. If you sleep for eight hours, and I think some of you students may do that, you may do better, you may do worse, I don't know, but eight hours apparently is the average of what we need to sleep, that means that every ten minutes of a day is one percent of the day. You you know what I'm going to ask you next. How much percentage of your wakened day is taken in prayer? Ten minutes is one percent. Twenty minutes is two percent. Thirty minutes is three percent. But not only should we be asking ourselves, where does prayer fit in your personal life? But if we could say that prayer is the barometer, the the measure of our own spiritual health, surely we must say that prayer is the measure of the church's health. And we must be asking ourselves this question, not just as leaders of the church, but all of us within this church. This is our church, Christ church, and we are members of it. And we're all in here. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, where does prayer feature in our church life? I I am so thankful for, for the numbers that came out to the prayer meeting last week. I was very encouraged by that. But if I were writing an honest report, I would have to say something like this. LPC could do better. And I think if the Apostle Paul was writing the report, he would say that LPC must do better. Jesus said in uh, Matthew 21, 13, he said, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Is this a house of prayer? Prayer is essential to the church, and it's this imperative that brings out. Paul is urging, or as another translation says, Paul is exhorting Timothy to get the church to pray. It's, it's a really, really strong word. If you, if you look into it, that they say that exhort means to exert influence upon the will and the decisions of another with the object of guiding them into into a certain characteristic or instructions. It is not a gentle sort of light thing. Paul's not suggesting to Timothy that they might want to pray a little bit more. 
He doesn't say, I think it would be nice if you prayed a bit. He's not saying to them, don't you think you should? Or it would be good to. He's not saying, shall we pray? He is saying, let us pray. Friends, prayer in the life of the church is not an option. It's an essential. And I think we can go as far as to say this. Not to be prayerful as a church is not to be a church as Christ wanted us to be. Christ saved the church. And he saved it to be a prayerful church. And the first exhortation here to them is to be prayerful. And so he he develops it. And we can ask ourselves the second question or the second heading here. What is prayer? And again, we see this from verse 1. Paul uses different words to describe prayer. Uh, The verse should be up there. And you see the word supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. We have these uh, four different words there. Now, the word supplication comes from uh, the original, and it gives a, the original word comes from a sense of a need, a sense of seeking and asking because there is a need. And these requests, probably more often than not, are seen as personal. And we see an example of, of supplication in Jesus' life. Uh, and we read about it in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. And in the days of his flesh, that's when Jesus was, was here as a man, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with a loud cry and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And then that brings us back to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus crying out and saying, Lord, if it's possible, have this cup taken from me. That was his supplication. That was his intercession for himself. He was pleading with God. And thankfully, it was not about his will, but it was about God's will being done. So praying is this sense of bringing our supplications, our needs, our hurts, our desires to God in prayer. Then we have that word prayer that's more general. This is the one that's used throughout the Bible. It's a term that just basically refers to many different types of prayer. Speaking to God, bringing petitions to God, bringing praise to God, bringing thanksgiving to God. It's a very general term. And then we have intercessions. And intercessions brings us down again to something more particular. The root word is for an interview. And and so there's a sense here of praying to God on behalf of others. There's, There's an interview, there's an interceding with God on behalf of others. And again in God's Word we can see examples of this. In, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 27, we, we read that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. He comes to, to God, the Father, on our behalf, and He intercedes on our behalf, and He brings our petitions, our supplications, our prayers to God the Father. And again in Romans chapter 8, a little bit further on in verse 24, we read of Jesus. And it talks about Jesus who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
And so our prayers are not just our supplications for our own needs and our own wants. Our prayers are intercessions for the needs and the concerns and the desires for others. Just as the Holy Spirit and Jesus are interceding for us. And then there's thanksgiving. Prayers of gratitude to God. As Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he says, Give thanks in all circumstances. Why should we be giving thanks in all circumstances? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And sadly, this is so often missed out. Aren't we experts in the area of supplications. I'm sure you've got a prayer list of things that you want, you need, and, and that's what comes out. And it's so easy when you start praying that that is what flows out. And, and maybe we can be good for intercession. Someone's told us and asked us to pray for them. We said yes, and we're praying for this or praying for that. But I think of this challenging task of prayer often, thanksgiving is the hardest. We, we all too quickly ask for what we want and what we need, but all too slow to give thanks when God blesses us with what we need and what we want. And all too slow to give thanks to God for when things are not going the way we want them to. But we're reminded to give thanks in all circumstances. Thanksgiving is important because it's the will of God. Thanksgiving is important because it gives God the glory. And Thanksgiving is important because it encourages us to remember what God has done for us. Part of our Thursday evenings when we're all together it is testimony time. And testimony time is giving thanks to God for what he's done. We have three rules with our testimonies. They've got to have Jesus at the center, they've got to be short, and they've got to have Jesus at the center. That's who we're giving thanks to. We're giving thanks to Jesus. And, and when we hear each other's testimonies, when you hear of a brother or sister's answered prayer, or maybe someone is sharing something, do you remember six months ago we were praying for that? Now this is what God has done. And we're encouraged, and we give thanks, and it's exciting. And so prayer of thanksgiving doesn't just give God the glory, but it also encourages us to remember what God has done for us. And it helps get us out of a selfish self-pitiful prayer life that's grasping like a greedy child in a sweetie shop. See, this description of prayer that's given here so shortly in those four words is so similar to how Paul describes it in Philippians 4. Philippians 4 and verse 3, you know this well, do not be anxious about anything. Why not? There's so much to be anxious about. There's school fees to pay. There's so much to be anxious about. There's exams ahead. There's so much to be anxious about. My parents live in a dangerous part of the world. There's so much to be anxious about. I'm not sure how I'm going to feed myself this coming week. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
That is, in a nutshell, what prayer is. But who were these Ephesians to pray for? And we see this in verses 1, the end part, and the beginning part of verse 2. Paul is urging them to, to pray. And he's urging them to pray for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. See, when we pray corporately here as a church, we have a responsibility to pray beyond our own personal concerns. Yes, it's good to pray for those personal concerns, but we have to look beyond this. And here we have this statement, to pray for all people. Hang about, Paul. That's going to be a long, long prayer meeting. How many billion people are there in the world? Do we put a list of them all up and start on, on Monday and just keep going till we never get to the end? And, and some poor person on that list is going to die before we got to it because it's going to take us so long to get there. So we have to be careful here. It says for all people. But does that mean we have to pray for everyone in the world by name? No. You see, this is really important. There are times in the Bible when the word all is not a literal all, but a more general of all types. See, this was a church where there was problems and challenges, particularly between Greeks and Jews. And it had been wrong for that church just to pray for the Jews. And the Jewish people just to pray for the Jews. Or for the Greeks just to pray for the Greeks. And we can immediately see this in our context here, can't it? Because we look around this room and there is many different nationalities. Just the nationalities that introduced themselves this morning. We had Nigeria, we had Rwanda, we had Liberia, didn't we? We've got Cameroonians here, we've got Namibians here, we've got people from all over the place, America, England, and even Scotland, which we're particularly proud of in a humble way. But it would be wrong for me just to get up here and just to pray for the English people. Just as it would be wrong for a Liberian just to pray for the Liberian. Just as it would be wrong for the Cameroonian only to pray for Cameroonians and the Cameroonian situations. We are to pray for all people. And so we should be concerned for all people. We should be concerned for the Turkish speakers and the non-Turkish speakers. We should be concerned for the English speakers and the non-English speakers. The black, the white, the students, the workers, the old, the young, the well-educated, the not-so-well-educated. We should be praying for all people. And, And this church was given a special commission, and we are given a special commission to pray for kings and rulers and the leaders about them. Now, we have to remember the context of this, yeah? We, we might think it's a bit difficult to pray for these leaders here. What a mess they've made of the COVID situation. That might, might be how you're thinking. What's this Adapas all about? Why did they do this? Why can't they sort out the education system so that we have free transportation, free internet, free education, and why not some free food as well? That's what a government should be doing for us. This lot are just not doing that. They're not taking care of the needs of the blacks. They're not taking care of the needs of the whites. They just are thinking about themselves. Why should we pray for them? We think that might be, or, or we could think across the water. We think, why should we pray for leaders across there? And look what they're doing. 
and look how they're acting, and look how they're oppressing. Nero, Emperor Nero, was a governor at this time. He was in charge. Nero burnt Christians alive in his garden because he thought it was fun. Nero fed Christians to the wild animals in the amphitheater to entertain people. And they were told to pray for him. So if we think our praying for them is difficult, no, we're not even close. They were not urged to pray curses down. And I'm going to emphasize this, because maybe something I experienced in Nigeria as a pastor going there and seeing some of the churches was something I hadn't experienced before, and that was the calling down of curses on people. That is not in God's Word. And that is not the prayers that are being prayed here, because we're told who to pray for, and then he goes on to say what to pray for. They were to pray, and we see this in verses 2, the end part, through to 5. And it says we're to pray for, they're to pray for kings and all who are in high places. Why? So that they could lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Calling down curses is not a quiet, peaceful, godly, dignified way. But what we are to be praying is for these leaders in high positions and these kings to have a peaceful and godly and dignified way. And and that's so that the church can lead that. And and, and the big challenge that the, the church had then to be able to lead a peaceful, quiet, godly and dignified life was those who were in positions of power. Those that were causing them problems around about them. And so it's a very, very practical prayer. Paul wants the church to grow. And Paul realizes that at times the church is hampered and struggles because it cannot be that peaceful, quiet, godly church that it is because the pressures around them are so great. And so they were to pray for these leaders and these kings and these people in high positions. And they were to pray because it is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, verse 3. You see, friends, when as believers, when as a church, we lead a peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified life, God is pleased. And why is God pleased? Because if you look at the world around about us, the world that is full of darkness is not quiet. It is not godly. It is not dignified. It is not peaceful. And this is the contrast. We're to be a light in the darkness. And this light shines out in a quiet, godly, dignified life. And this quiet, godly, dignified life pleases God our Savior. And why does Paul put in there, God our Savior? Because he's reminding those Ephesians that they've been saved. They've been bought with a price. They are Christ twice over in the sense that they were created by him. They rebelled against him and he's redeemed them and he's saved them and he's brought them back into his family. And this is what pleases the Savior. And that's why we need to be praying 
for all people and all kings and all nations and all those we need to be praying. You see, as we pray, practically, we must pray for the leaders. We also need to take this a step further as well. I think we need to look. We need to look and see what else can rob us of leading a peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified life. Are there other things that draw us away from that? And we need to be getting those out of our lives. Not just because it pleases God, because there is something much greater at stake. You see, Paul develops this further, and and he says this is good and pleasing, verse 3, in the sight of God our Savior. And in verse 4 he goes on, who desires all people to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as we should be praying for salvation of the lost, we should be looking that our lives are used by God to speak into the hearts and lives of the lost around us. These two things go together. You see, if, if we are not living this peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified life, we're going to be like the world. And our witness is ruined. And these two things go side by side. God wants people to be saved. And we need to be the vessel that God is going to use in people's salvation story. We are taking on Christ's continued role. Salvation is brought through him. The disciples is what the church was built on. The foundation is there. And we should be reflecting the light of Christ that came in to take away the darkness of the world. We're not the light, but we've become the reflective light of Christ. And so this this prayer that we should be praying is we should be praying for the salvation of the lost. We should be praying that the the kings would uh, would be allowing us to lead these peaceful lives. And we should be leading these peaceful lives because we should be passionate about wanting to see people saved. Because it says in verse 4, Jesus desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now this verse can give us a problem. If it's not properly understood within the context of all of God's Word, it can give us a problem. You see, some people take this verse, and and the one that follows on from this, it says, uh, Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all. And and they take that earlier verse and this verse that I've just read, quoted, to mean that Jesus died for everyone, and God wants everyone to be saved. Now, I want us to be careful with how we're thinking about this. And I want us to, 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 to work through what the whole of God's Word tells us. But firstly, there's a problem with thinking like this. 
there's a problem with thinking that Jesus died for everyone and wants everyone to be saved. And the problem is this. It reduces God's power. Now, how does it reduce God's power? It reduces God's power like this because has everybody been saved? Has everyone that's ever lived since this passage was written been saved? Well, no, they haven't. So, if they haven't been saved, if you believe that this verse is saying that Jesus died for everyone and God wants everyone to be saved, we're saying that God has failed. We're saying that God's word has failed. Now, I've got a problem with that. I, 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 I can't have a God whose word fails. The very reason that God is God is because his word doesn't fail. And so we've got something to wrestle with here, something to, to work through in our minds. What is going on here? And, and, if, and if, not, if, if not everyone is saved, then if Jesus died for everyone, it means that his death for some people was wasted. For all those that don't come to faith, his death was wasted because he died for everyone. And again, that causes me a problem. Because where's the power of God? Who's this great sovereign God who can do all things, but he just can't save a few people, even though that's what he wants. So we need to see it in the context of all of God's Word. And when we see all of God's Word, it helps us understand some of these tricky things. You see, in in the Gospel of Mark, in in chapter 10, and verse 45, it says, The Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom for many. It doesn't say a ransom for all. And the all in this passage here, who says a ransom for all, is in the context of all people. Were we meant to pray for everybody in the world? No, it's all different types of people. Christ's ransom was for Liberians and Cameroonians and Nigerians and Cypriots and Turks and Palestinians. And, and, and the list goes on and on and on of all different types, many people. In, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, talking of Jesus coming to this world, talking about Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which is Savior, Joshua. And he will save everyone? No. He will save his people from their sins. And in the Gospel of John, which we've been looking through before we came to this series, in, in chapter 17 and verse 9, he says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All the people, and, and the ransomed for all here means all different types of people. It's particularly meaning there and then for the Greeks and for the Jews. But there is a, there's a real application for us right now. 
And, and, the, and the application is this. If, if you're sat here a little bit confused by this and you're not a Christian, the application for you is this. Now is the time to call on the name of the Lord. Your sins are your problem, and they're separating you from God. And right now, you are on the edge of an eternity in hell without God, because that's where your sins will take you. And the wonder of what's been done here is Christ Jesus came to ransom all those who call on the name of the Lord. You see, this morning, if you call on the name of the Lord, if you realize your sins and you ask for forgiveness, God's Word tells you, and God's Word is always right, that you will be forgiven. When you ask Jesus for forgiveness, believing in the price that He paid, believing that He redeemed you on the cross for your sins, You shall be saved, and you will be brought into the kingdom of God. And you can then rejoice and say, Christ has died for me. Amen. You see, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish and have eternal life. So if you haven't believed, if you haven't called on the name of the Lord, now is the time to do it. And I emphasize now, because none of us know if we have tomorrow. And because none of us know if we have tomorrow, the other application for this for us as a church is we should be desperately, desperately praying for all people, praying for their salvation, praying that God would work in their hearts and their lives and show them their sin and bring them in. There should be a desperation about this because they are on the edge of an eternity without God. And we know God, and we know of this salvation, and we know of the gospel, and we know that we cannot save them ourselves, but we know that if we pray for them, God works in powerful ways that we cannot even imagine. There is a will for people, God's will is for people to be saved. And and we as a church should be praying that people are saved. And I want to challenge each one of you here this morning, each one of you that calls yourself a Christian this morning, when did you last pray for someone to be saved? When did you last plead for someone to be saved? Have you got a list of names of people that you are regularly praying for to be saved? You're not going to get all the people in the world. But as a Christian, you should have people on your heart that you are praying for. And maybe your action point to take away from this sermon is, Lord, lay on my heart people to pray for. People to pray for that they may come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I want to ask you this. Can you afford one hour? One hour to join the brothers and sisters on Zoom to pray for the salvation of the lost of this island. One hour. What is one hour? It is 6% of a day. It's not even a tithe of a day. 
is 6% of a day. I would long for revival to happen at that Zoom meeting and for there to be more people there that we know what to do with because we are motivated and desiring to pray for all people, to pray for salvation, to pray for God's kingdom to come. And this is what Paul was telling the Ephesians to do. And this is what Paul, or rather, should I say, this is what God is telling us through Paul, through his word right now. We, as a church, must, have to, be praying for all people and praying for their salvation particularly. And lastly, in this section, we see that there's a posture of prayer. A posture of prayer. The the Bible is, is full of different postures for prayer. Some churches, when they pray corporately, they will all stand. Some they will kneel. Some will bow. Some will lie prostrate. Some will be sitting. Paul says here in verse 8, I desire that in every place that men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The, the big deal is not the position. Your, your prayers aren't going to become more effective by standing or kneeling or lying prostrate or waving your hands. The key here is we are called to holiness. They are to lift holy hands. Men have a propensity to be angry and quarreling. Sin gets in the way of our relationship with God and sin gets in the way of our prayers. And if we want our prayers to be effective, it's not a matter of how we do them or how long even we do them. It's a matter of how we come before our God. And we need to come as those that have been made holy through the blood of Christ, but also those who are striving to be holy through the strength of the Holy Spirit. The psalmist said it like this in Psalm 24, which we read at the very beginning of the service. Verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? The picture language was going up to Jerusalem. The picture language was praying to God. And the question was, who can do that? Who can come into the presence of God? Who can pray? Who can stand in that holy place? And the psalmist says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Maybe our prayers as a church have been hampered and hindered because we're not living the holy lives that we should be. Maybe your personal prayers are not effective as you would desire them to be because there is sin in your life that is robbing you of your close relationship with Christ. You see, a peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified life is what God wants. Not angry, not quarreling, not letting sin get in the way of prayer. 
And so the posture of prayer is not how we hold our body, but it's how ourselves are held before God. And the great wonder of this is we can come to God and ask Him to help us. Ask Him to give us those holy hands that we need. Ask us to, Him to wash us clean of the sin that gets in the way. Ask us to, Him to overcome our anger and our quarreling or whatever that may be so that we can have the right posture of prayer, so that we can do the task that we've been called to, to pray for all men that Christ will save them. And then next week we're going to delve into this even deeper when we look at the conduct and this conduct of a holy life is going to run on in there. So there's a spoiler alert. Next week, that's what we'll be looking at. And I trust that the Lord helps and blesses us and convicts us this week that we who know God will be people of prayer. And those that don't may soon come to know him.